Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In 1886, Congress passed a bill, the Margarine Act, that aimed to end an entire industry. Today we find out why margarine became the target of oddball laws, Supreme Court battles, and some nasty smear campaigns. Some of the earlier cartoons 
showed these wonderful vats of oil with things being thrown into them, you know, shoes, the odd mouse, so that it could all be boiled down into margarine. And so that was the argument. What is in this, this rather ugly mess of fat? But first up, I'm joined by Folulak and Kotu, who writes about obscure international snacks in her newsletter, Unsnackable. Her obsession with snacks started in elementary school when she helped her parents talk their vending machines around Minneapolis. Folu, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thanks for having me. I love the part in your newsletter, Unsnackable, where you mention, you know, my parents own two vending machines as a side hustle. And your father used to put things in these machines that he liked, but not necessarily things that other people liked, right? Yeah. And, you know, because I was the one who was often going with him to restock the machines, I would get what was left over as a treat, but it would be things that I wouldn't like either. <laughs> like the always stale salted nut roll you mentioned? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Minnesota's Pride and Joy, the salted nut roll, which... I don't understand how it was always, always stale. And, you know, he would bring the extras home. So it was in my favor to make sure that we wouldn't end up with a large pack of, you know, something that no one would really want to have. So you started this newsletter in September 2020. It's called Unsnackable. Uh, Tell us about Unsnackable. Yeah, so Unsnackable was my pandemic project. It was pretty hard to go out and browse the aisles and find things I found interesting. So I started a newsletter about all the snacks I wanted but couldn't have from all around the world. So not just things that you could find if you went to an international aisle at a grocery store, but Things like, you know, licorice powder that Swedes put on their ice cream. You see in Pakistan, they have a lemon mint version of Sprite. Are there some other good examples where they take something that was, let's say, traditionally American and then turned it into something that was more appealing to the own local palate? Chips overall are, I wouldn't say that they're uniquely American, but they're a very good way to convey local flavors. Like I found chips flavored with blood sausage, like black sausage. And that's something that (laughs) definitely wouldn't be sold in America, but people seem to really love it. And I think my unofficial rule of thumb for chips is that the more polarizing and localized a flavor is, the more likely it is to be really interesting like the Thai Lays have just a really amazing way of capturing how Thai food has heat and sourness that builds in layers it's not just a single flavor of spiciness in the way that a buffalo chip would be it's a multi-level thing Let's go through a list of really interesting snacks you've come across. Uh, You know, the chocolate Oreo scallion ice cream sandwich might be a good one to start with. Yeah, I think 
the most dangerous area in snack innovation is where savory flavors meet sweet ones. But the scallion Oreo ice cream seemed like one that would weirdly work. There's such a high milk content and that fattiness will coat your tongue, especially with the black cocoa. It seemed like it would balance out. I think the most interesting one was the sun-kissed lemon jelly soda from Hong Kong. So you explain what happens, because this is really kind of remarkable. I actually had one earlier today, and it's become one of my favorite beverages. You see it a lot in Asia that there are these jelly beverages. Sometimes they come in pouches, sometimes they come in cans. But the sun-kiss is interesting because it's salted lemon but Mm. it's not very salty it's more of a saltiness that you catch on the tail end of tasting it and it makes everything else feel sweeter but it's also still carbonated so it's like a lightly gelatinized lemonade soda and you shake it to agitate the jelly to kind of loosen it up so you can drink it out of a can. Um, Hawaiian pizza-flavored smoothies in Germany. Pineapple, oregano, and tomato, really? Yeah, that one. I'm not a person who loves tomato juice, but that brand that makes the pizza smoothie has a lot of very random and interesting collaborations. Like they did a collaboration with a cough drop brand where they made like a menthol infused smoothie. Oh Lord. But it was, you know, it was like a, a smaller shot. So like, you know, the ginger shots that you can get at the grocery store. So let's assume as a quote unquote side hustle, you buy a vending machine. Because I I think this is career advice. You need to get a vending machine. And then what you need to do is import this stuff and put it in and see what sells. I think it would be fascinating study. So which things do you think you would try first to sell in a vending machine? Well, this is a magic vending machine, so I can have anything in it. So I would put Japanese Mitsuya cider. No, No, what's that? Mitsuya cider is a soda that... I always say that it tastes like the sensation of drinking a ginger ale on a plane. Mm. If you have ginger ale on a plane, you kind of only get the fuzzy, sweet notes. And it feels like it's restorative. Now, what's the really, I I want the really strange left field choice now. This feels like picking favorite children. Yeah, but all parents pick favorite children when they, <laughs> when they don't think anybody's listening. So go right ahead. Uh, it would have to be the Japanese Kobe beef fat ice cream. <laughs> okay, you got me there. Yeah. <laughs> you could sell it for a lot, so it would be good margins. And then people would try it and they'd be like, oh, it's just like good ice cream with a slightly higher fat content. Be kind of like... Uh, like a custard. I'm Midwestern and my ideal ice cream is always going to be a custard. Folo, thank you. You've completely changed my view of what a good snack is. 
And I do hope someday you get your fantasy vending machine. Thanks. Well, I'm glad that I could expand the world of snacks for you. That was Folu Akin Kotu. You can find our newsletter at unsnackable.com. Inspired by my conversation with Folu, we asked our listeners to call in with their favorite snacks from around the world. Here's what they shared. Hi, my name is Valeria Richuli. I'm originally from Colombia, so there's a lot of Colombian snacks that I crave when I'm feeling homesick. One of them is mango biche con sal y limón. It's basically unripe mango with lime, salt, and pepper. Hi, Milksy. This is Aisha from Seattle. And one of the snacks that we eat in my Palestinian-American family is lupini beans. Hi, this is Lawrence from Atlanta. One of my favorite snacks from China is a traditional candy called Shanjiajuan, which are these rolled up sheets of condensed fruit paste, and their flavor is somewhere between a strawberry and a raspberry. Hi Milk Street, this is Julie from Sonoma, California. One of my favorite snacks are cacahuetes, fried peanuts with a crunchy shell on the outside of them. I've never really seen them anywhere else, and I always try to get them when I'm in Mexico. Hi, this is Vlad. When I was growing up in Romania, all the grandmas would make this thing called biscuit salami. It's chocolate and coconut and crackers and Turkish delight, and it's all wrapped up to look like a piece of salami. And wow, I used to love eating it when I was a kid. I'd like to thank all of our listeners who called in to share their snack recommendations with us. Right now, it's time for me and Sarah Moulton to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris, I have a question. I know that your favorite cocktail is an old-fashioned. And uh, I'm just wondering, have you stepped out a little with a different cocktail? Well, actually, two weeks ago, my wife, Melissa, and I actually went out to dinner, which was hugely exciting. Woo-woo! And the new place just opened two blocks away. It's Peruvian, actually. She and I always sit at a bar. We don't like sitting at tables, which says something about our... The thing you're most interested in. The relative importance of alcohol and food. And I had a Pisco Sour, which was... I haven't had one in years. And it's slightly foamy because it has egg white in it. It has Pisco, which is sort of a form of brandy, a little simple syrup, lemon juice. It was just spectacular. It was absolutely spectacular. So I've been an old-fashioned guy in all... The respects of that word for a long time. But the Pisco Sour was just really... Over the top. Yeah, it's the first cocktail I've had in a long time that was just like, wow, this is... Because, you know, it's sour, it's sweet, it's foamy. And they had little hibiscus syrup, which is used um, when I was in Oaxaca a couple years ago. That's used very frequently by bartenders to make interesting drinks. So that was a little bit that they just drizzled on the top. So Pisco Sour has arrived in my cocktail life. Yay. Much excite. And on that note, we'll take a call. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Drew Timothy. How can we help you? I was calling because recently in uh, the fall, I was able to go deer hunting and got my first deer. I like this topic already. Where were you hunting? I was hunting in southern Ohio. Ohio, you actually have deer, right? Yeah. I can hunt for two weeks straight and see maybe one rack. And I have people who go other states, and they see one every 45 minutes. So anyway, you want to talk about cooking venison, maybe? 
um, I'm actually interested in some of my friends and I occasionally make sausage. So I was kind of curious to what type of sausage would venison lend itself to. Like an andouille was one of the things I was thinking about, but I wasn't sure what's kind of the best options for a venison meat and making a homemade sausage. As you know, the problem with venison is its leanness, right? And uh, sausage is not made out of the prime cuts. So you're talking about the round, essentially the leg, which is where most of the meat is, which is very lean. The fat content is critical. So I'd say 30% to 35% fat content to make this really palatable. Because I've mm-hmm. had lean venison sausage that's really hard to eat. For andouille, which I think is a great idea, you might want to check out Brad Leone. You know, he has that show, It's Alive, on YouTube. And I think he did a, a show on uh, andouille sausage. I think it's his dad's recipe. But make sure your minimum fat content's 30%. I mean, years ago, I made my own sausage, and I thought 30% sounded too high. So I used like 20%. It was not worth eating. I mean, I don't hunt, so I'm sort of in my corner over here, and I'll stay right here. But I do know that venison is very lean and also is a little gamey. So doing a sausage with a lot of spices in it, like andouille, you know, Cajun spice and garlic and stuff, is a brilliant idea. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. Drew, thank you for calling. Yes. Thank you guys both for your help. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a kitchen mystery, Sarah and I are here to help. Give us a ring anytime. Our number is... 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Katie, and I am calling from just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. How can we help you today? I am having a lot of trouble producing decent cinnamon rolls. And I've tried a couple of times now, and I end up with the same result, which is flat, kind of sad rolls that don't rise and get fluffy and delicious. The only thing that saves them is just a horrible amount of glaze. And I talked to my sister, and she thought maybe the milk that I added was too hot and I killed the yeast. I guess I'm hoping for some advice or some suggestions so I could try to make a successful batch. Okay, well, I'm going to take you on a complete detour. Okay. Don't make a yeast dough. Make a quick bread dough. Make a cream biscuit dough. It's about two cups of flour, a tablespoon of baking powder, one and a half to three quarters cup of cream, a little bit of salt, and a couple tablespoons of sugar. Mix it up very quickly. Like biscuits, you don't want to develop too much of the gluten. And then you roll it out into whatever, you know, you want, what size, and then you put the stuff and roll it up. It doesn't need to rise. You make it. You fill it. You roll it. You cut it. You put it in the well-oiled or parchment-lined 9-inch round pan with some caramel nuts and stuff on the bottom, and then you bake it. And it's so much easier than the yeast version. Yes, it's easier, but it's not nearly as good. First of all, are you adding the yeast directly to the dry ingredients, or are you proofing the yeast? I was doing what the Betty Crocker cookbook told me to do. I mixed the flour and the sugar and the salt and the yeast all together and then added the warm milk to that. And how warm was the milk? It said very warm, and so I guesstimated what was very warm. The first thing is it should be no more than like 110 degrees. 140 degrees will kill yeast. What I would do is I would proof the yeast directly on the liquid, and I would make sure the liquid's no more than 110 to 115. 120, 130 is dangerous. Use an instant-read thermometer. And you can add a little bit of the sugar to the uh, milk. 
also helps the yeast to bubble. And then after a few minutes, you should see it bubble, and that'll proof it. In other words, you can tell if it's active, and then go ahead. That would be the first thing. The second thing is, is it actually doubling? Are you pretty sure you're getting that first rise to double? I don't know if I got quite that doubling. I was basing Mm. it more on the time that they suggested in the cookbook for how long it was supposed to rise for. Forget that. Right. It seems like maybe a lot of things went wrong. (laughs) How warm is the spot where you were letting it rise? I found a warm spot. There is a device that's just a sheet of, it looks like rubber. It's called a dough riser and you plug it in and you put the bowl on top of it and it will give you the perfect temperature in the bowl. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm just going to throw in one thing about doubling. How you know it's doubled is you gently put your finger in it, about an inch, and you're looking for an inny belly button, meaning it holds the imprint of your finger. If it bounces back, it's not doubled. Oh, okay. That's an excellent tip. That's really the key thing because if it's under-risen or if it's over-risen, you're not going to get the right spring in the oven. The one thing you can do with dough is you can get these buckets that have measurements on the side So you can be absolutely sure that you're getting the right doubling. Well, great. Or you could just do cream biscuits. I might try all of it. And Katie, report back, please. We like to know. I will. Okay. All right. Thank you. Terrific. Take care. Fantastic. Thank you you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're investigating the embattled history of margarine. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. 
I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Pass the butter, please, Vicky. Hey, what's going on? I switched from butter to imperial margarine. You mean this is margarine? That's an ad from Imperial Margarine, which wants you to believe their product tastes and looks just like butter. But this rivalry between margarine and butter has often reached extremes, as my next guest, Chris Berube, discovered. He investigated the strange history of margarine for the 99% Invisible episode, I Can't Believe It's Pink Margarine. Chris, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let me just start with a comment, which is, this is not an apology for margarine, right? I mean, I, I have nothing good to say about margarine, although I understand its history, which we'll get into. There were some good reasons it was developed initially, mm-hmm. but I, I'm definitely on the butter side of this. So I just want you to know going in, I'm definitely biased. Oh, that's okay. I don't believe that I have a side either way. I spent enough time with margarine that I have developed a grudging respect for it, but I did not come in trying to reclaim margarine as this okay. uh, special food or anything. So don't I just worry. wanted to yeah. make sure. Okay. So margarine did not start in America. Mm-hmm. It actually started in France in the 19th century, right? That's right. So actually, the reason we have margarine is because France was gearing up for a war with Prussia. This is how long ago this happened. And Napoleon III, who was the emperor at the time, actually had a contest to develop something 
that was going to be more shelf-stable than butter that could be sent along with the troops. And this French chemist named uh, Hippolyte Mergebourie developed kind of this miracle substance called uh, margarine, which at the time was made with beef byproducts. And I spoke to a historian named Elaine Kostrova. She's the author of a book called Butter, A Rich History. Apparently it was quite palatable. I've been tempted a couple of times to try to reproduce it just to just to know what it tasted like, but it was certainly an animal product, not anything like the margarines we have today or have had, you know, for the last hundred years. So I, I love the fact, I guess, or not, that, that margarine <laughs> kind of dies out in France, its birthplace. It, yeah. it runs across the Atlantic to America where it was embraced. But you you mentioned a, a type of butter I'd never heard of, renovated butter, which sounds better than it was. So what, what was renovated butter? Yeah, renovated makes it sound like they've uh, they've judged it up a little right. bit or made it uh, fancier in some way. But uh, in fact, when margarine comes to America in the 19th century, you know, butter is pretty expensive. And mm. if you didn't have a lot of money, you either had to buy butter that had gone rancid or uh, this thing called renovated butter. And I talked to Elaine Kosrova about this. It, uh, it sounds disgusting. Renovated butter was essentially butter that had gone bad or cream that didn't really churn correctly. And they would so-called renovate it. They would process it, you know, adding more salt, some oils, you know, they would just basically put in whatever they could to make it cohesive and spreadable with little regard for taste. I mean, it was generally really nasty stuff. Here's something I don't get about this. You know, if you look mm-hmm. back at Fanny Farmer cookbooks, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, cream and butter were common ingredients in those books. Sure. And you think about the American farm, you know, being mostly an agrarian society to the mid-19th century. In other words, margarine was popular in states that had plenty of milk and butter available, right? It's true. Margarine was uh, becoming very available in states that had lots of slaughterhouses. They had all of this uh, excess fat that they could use to make margarine, and it was available pretty affordably pretty quickly. Um, And the dairy industry became existentially worried about what this meant. (laughs) They were worried that it was going to just destroy their business. So at this time, the butter lobby was putting on basically a disinformation campaign, and they started this whole panic that maybe dishonest shopkeepers were selling you fake butter, and it was actually margarine. Um, but the other thing they did is they had all of these editorial cartoons that were showing up in newspapers. And I spoke to a food historian at McGill University named Natalie Cook about this. Some of the earlier cartoons show these wonderful vats of oil with things being thrown into them, you know, shoes, animals, you know, the odd mouse, so that it could all be boiled down into margarine. And so that was the argument. What is in this this rather ugly mess of fat? One way that the dairy industry tried to combat margarine was forcing state laws to enforce coloring margarine, right? That's right. So states were trying to dissuade people from buying margarine. And part of how they did that is they passed laws saying that margarine had to be these really unpleasant colors. So some states passed laws about red margarine, some about black margarine. And Natalie Cook described to me how pink became kind of the default color for many states. Vermont in 1884, New Hampshire and West Virginia in 1891 all required that it be colored pink. So imagine spreading pink margarine on your bread. Talk about something very unappetizing at your morning breakfast. 
So some states pass laws requiring that margarine be dyed these, you know, crazy colors, but other states pass laws forbidding that it be colored at all. So that also had the same effect on making the margarine look inedible, right? Exactly. So in Quebec, where I grew up a little bit, that was the last jurisdiction in North America to have a law like that. So when I was a kid, you know, in the early 2000s, they still had margarine that looked a little bit like paste. So when I would go to my grandmother's house, I would open up the margarine, just see this basically inedible Mm. gray looking tub as opposed to margarine now, which is kind of a nice light yellow color. Finally, uh, yellow dye packs were sent out so the consumer could, I mean, that was a way around the, the laws, right? That's right. So during this period where there were laws on the books, the producers of margarine tried to figure out different ways around it. And something that they did for a long time is they distributed these little dye packs that you had to basically swirl in. And actually, in the course of my reporting, I did speak to a couple of people who had used the dye packs. And one of those people, it turns out, was Marion Nessel, the uh, famous food historian. She told me that uh, as a kid, she actually remembers using these dye packs. Well, you got this white block of fat, and then you got a packet of food dye. And with great effort, you mixed them together so it would look like butter. But people didn't want to eat it. It was awful looking. What was the legal basis for banning the sale of margarine or forcing margarine producers to colorize it? Well, what's so interesting is when you read the Supreme Court transcripts, they didn't really have much of a basis for it. But one of the big arguments was that we don't know what's in this and that butter is, you know, it's pastoral, it's pure. We know where it comes from. And this came up a lot during a debate in Congress about taxing margarine in 1886. And one of the House members from Iowa, this representative named David Henderson, he gave this quote in support of butter. You will find butter in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelations. You will hardly find a book in the Bible that does not speak of butter. The article... And he went on like this for quite a while before finally getting to margarine. Now, let me give you the first record I find of oleomargarine. In the fourth act of the play of Macbeth, where there was a little cotillion of witches, I find oleomargarine completely described. Double, double, boil and trouble, eye of newt, you know. Exactly. (laughs) So, okay, now we shift over to hydrogenation of vegetable oils. You want to just describe what hydrogenation is? Well, sure. Hydrogenation is this chemical process by which you can kind of solidify a liquid. And the advent of hydrogenation meant that they could use vegetable oils to make margarine instead of the call fat and these other animal fats that were being used. And it came around the time of the World Wars, and that's when margarine really became mainstream because there was suddenly all this demand to send over shelf-stable food that could be eaten by soldiers in the United States. One of the things you mentioned is Eleanor Roosevelt, and she was sort of pro-margarine. But can I just say that that, <laughs> that poor Franklin had to endure the health food proclivities of his dear wife. I mean, they used to be in the White House and eat prune pudding for dessert. I mean, the food was just unbelievable. And the story was when Eleanor would go somewhere, Franklin would get the chef to make him a real meal because the food was so appalling. But anyway, she was she was pro-margarine, right? She certainly was. And it's funny because once margarine became a much more mainstream product, 
there was a real push by the companies that were producing margarine to market it better. And one of the things they did is they hired celebrity influencers to pitch margarine. And, and the most prominent was Eleanor Roosevelt. Years ago, most people never dreamed of eating margarine, but times have changed. Nowadays, you can get a margarine like the new Good Luck, which really tastes delicious. Well, she certainly is one of the towering figures of the 20th century, but in terms of food, Please. <laughs> she, 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 she really went off the deep end. Yeah, she certainly uh, was a big player in the margarine redemption campaign. And then a little later in the 20th century, margarine started to get even more popular because there was this big worry about saturated fats. So suddenly there's this big move away from butter towards margarine. And by the 70s, margarine uh, became the better selling product. What's ironic about that, of course, is that our wisdom about what's healthy has flipped. So sometime around the 90s, uh, you'll remember there was the panic over trans fats. Big announcement from the FDA requiring companies to phase out all trans fats from our food, saying this could save up to 7,000 lives a year. Trans fats, probably worse all along, that the margarine was probably worse than the butter all along, which is why coronary heart disease. And okay, so today, if you go into uh, a healthy superstore of some kind, right, you see things like Earth Balance. Mm -hmm. What is that? Is that just non-trans fat margarine, essentially? Yeah. So now if you're going into a grocery store, you're likely to see a number of products that are branded as either vegan butter or plant-based butter. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny because every time I was talking to people who were you know, advocates for plant-based butter, I'd say, like, it, it's margarine, right? And they'd be like, no, 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 it's absolutely not margarine. And then you look at the ingredient list, and it's essentially margarine. <laughs> so really... We're seeing the plant-based butters as maybe the the latest resurgence in margarine. It's the latest survival mechanism for this product that just uh, keeps on enduring and surviving on the grocery shelf. When I walk through a grocery store, I, I always ask myself, you know, do we need this product, right? Yeah. Or could the actual natural product be just fine? Initially, margarine was trying to solve a problem. Yeah. It was a reasonable alternative to the real thing. So I think it started out with good intentions from Napoleon on. But then it got into this nonsense about being healthier, which was not true. Yeah. And then it became a typical marketing ploy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's this strange thing where when you look at margarine, which I think a lot of us take for granted, I don't think a lot of people have strong, positive feelings towards margarine. They're either pretty neutral on it or uh, like yourself, Christopher, they, they strongly dislike it. Um, and when you look through all of its evolutions, it's it's kind of remarkable for such a bland product that early on it was kind of this miracle of science, uh, and then it became kind of this you know working class hero a little bit, this uh, affordable alternative for people who couldn't afford butter. Uh, and then we're getting up to uh, it being a health food and then a villain, a real health villain for people. Um, when you look at all of these various evolutions, it's kind of remarkable to consider that it's margarine we're talking about in all of these cases. Chris, thank you very much. Um, I can't believe it's Pink Margarine, the story of margarine from the beginning to the present. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Chris Berube. He produced and reported the 99% Invisible episode, I Can't Believe It's Pink Margarine. Margarine's a product that tried to sell itself as better than butter, a tried-and-true marketing gimmick. And here are a few others. Water and lemon juice will hydrate you better than sports drinks. Energy bars are, of course, packed with fat and sugar. Low-fat foods are highly processed with sugar added. 
and commercial whole wheat bread is brown white bread. So here's a good rule when shopping, just buy the product that has the shortest shelf life. That means that something in it is still alive. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Brazilian-style pizza. J.M., how are you? I'm great. You know, a while ago on this show, I had Nathan Mirvold, who does modernist cuisine and cookbooks, and he just did a three-volume pizza set, as you know, Mm. 10,000 words per (laughs) book on pizza. But he told me something really interesting, which is that Brazil views itself as the epicenter of world-class pizza, which I did not know. So... A few weeks later, you went to Sao Paulo to follow up on this concept. And what did you find? I found that I was shocked because I didn't know this either. And, you know, the idea of Brazil, a South America as the epicenter of pizza, to me, that sounded crazy. But I got there and it's true. And there's some long history behind it. You know, Italians started immigrating to Brazil more than 100 years ago. And it really picked up around World War II. And many of them came from Naples, which, of course, means they brought a tradition of pizza with them. And they did have to adapt a little bit to local ingredients, of course. But the pizza culture stayed really strong. And in some ways, I would argue, even stronger than in Italy. So in a nutshell, I think everyone's familiar with Neapolitan pizza. If you walked into a Brazilian pizza restaurant, what would you find and how is it different? Well, the first thing you're going to see is that there's white tablecloths on all the tables because pizza is taken very seriously, especially in Sao Paulo. It is eaten with a fork and knife, and there's a good reason for that. It's not just manners. It's a formal occasion. You know, they actually serve pizza at most weddings. (laughs) Pizza is considered wedding food, you know, and it's actually a family experience. You go out on the weekend for pizza. This is the thing. You know, in New York, you buy a slice and you walk down the street eating it. They would never in a million years do that in Brazil. This is a fine dining experience. So let's start in Naples. It's cooked in 60 or 70 seconds, 900 degree oven, high hydration dough, which means it's bubbly, etc. Very thin crust. So how is this different? All right. Let's start with the crust because it's much sturdier, lower hydration than what you find in Italy. It has more of a chew and just a more robust crust all around. Now, there's an important reason for that, and that's because of what you put on the pizza. Brazilians love topping their pizzas with tons and tons of toppings. So many toppings, you need a sturdier crust to hold them. And that's also why they eat the pizza with a fork and knife, because you could never pick up one of these slices and get it to your mouth without it falling all over you. So are these just a surplus of toppings, or are they wild and crazy toppings? They lean wild and crazy, because, you know, a lot of them actually are inspired by other dishes, such as, you know, an Italian, oh, let's say, caponata. I actually had a caponata pizza topped with raisins and eggplant and tomatoes. Mm. (laughs) It was actually really delicious. I had a Napoli in Beirut, which was goat cheese and za'atar and tomatoes. I had one of my favorites, a carbonara pizza. What? Which... <laughs> Does this have pasta on top of it or what? <laughs> no noodles, uh, but it definitely had uh, eggs, egg yolk, right. actually, and pancetta, and it was right. really, really delicious, but by far the most outlandish pizza and one of the most delicious. You're not going to buy this one, pad thai pizza. Oh, no. <laughs> now, 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 okay, 
<laughs> hey, you brought this up. Now you sell me on pad thai pizza. Go ahead. All right. Take your basic crust, yeah. top it with a nice, clean, raw tomato sauce, spiked with fish sauce, mind you. Yeah. And then you're going to add to that chicken and a spicy peanut sauce okay. and some red chilies and some sprouts and some cilantro. It's really good. But once it's, again, no noodles. No noodles, oh. thankfully. No okay. noodles. All right. Now I feel better. We know what Neapolitan pizza is. It's sort of the basis for New York-style pizza, I guess. This is a whole new thing for us, a sturdier crust, lots of different toppings. If you had to go back and eat pizza again, would you go to Brazil or go to Naples? As luck would have it, I actually just got back from Naples a few weeks ago, and I took the opportunity while I was there to eat in some of the famous pizzerias there. And it was good, but it wasn't exciting the way the Brazilian pizzas were. I actually was more impressed and more excited by the Brazilian pizzas because there was so much going on. You know, they had dozens of varieties. As you know, in a Neapolitan pizzeria, you get usually two options. And it's like tomato and cheese or tomato and cheese. In Brazil, like the sky is the limit. You can get anything you want on a pizza. And they just have these amazing unorthodox flavor combinations. Look, at Milk Street, we love contrasting textures and flavors. And the Brazilians are like totally channeling that vibe on their pizzas. So Brazil one's over at Naples, which means you probably should never go back to Naples again. I suspect I'll be banned. It's a very tough town to just look out. (laughs) Brazilian pizza, and you say, Jam, it's better than what you found in Naples. Thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Brazilian pizza at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman sings the praises of canned food. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, 
and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Molt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chris from Chicago. Hi, Chris. How can we help you today? Well, I had a question about dried mushrooms. I've tried using them twice in a couple different dishes. One was a mix of shiitakes and porcinis and portobellos in a uh, barley soup. And another was uh, I just added them to a stir fry. And in both instances, I tried to rehydrate them with boiling water for 30, 45-ish minutes. And in both times, they came out a bit rubbery at the end. And I thought maybe it was something I was doing with the rehydration or maybe it was the types of mushroom. But after doing some research, it seems like everyone raves about using dried mushrooms. So I feel like I'm doing something wrong. I don't think you're doing anything wrong. They just are a little chewier. What size were they? Oh, they were sliced. They were sliced. Well, they just are chewier. There's sort of no way around it. You know, if you found them too chewy... Uh, then I would chop them after you've resuscitated them. But the other thing that's very important is, did you use the soaking liquid? I did not. Okay, because that is, I think, why everybody's so madly in love with mushrooms uh, is, well, if you're going to use them resuscitated, there's another thing that people do, which is to grind them up and then use the powder, and that can be quite potent. Oh, yeah. okay. My only problem with that one, it depends on what mushrooms you're working with. So, for example, I find that sometimes porcini are a little dirty and need to be soaked and cleaned. And likewise, morels, because they have all those little cavities, if you get whole morels, you sort of really need to clean them out. But the main thing is that liquid is just liquid gold. And, you know, there's things you can do, like instead of just reconstituting it in uh, water, you could use chicken broth or you could add a little alcohol, you know, like oftentimes porcini in particular are, you know, maybe resuscitated with a little bit of 
Madeira or Marsala or something like that. Okay. And then you use yeah. that liquid. Do run it through a cheesecloth or just through a strainer of some kind because the liquid, there could be sediment at the bottom, but it's really yummy stuff. Anyway, Chris. So when I get older, I'll have my wife resuscitate me with Marsala. <laughs> yeah, why not? Or Madeira. It all sounds good. Well, first of all, I agree with you. Dried mushrooms reconstituted, rehydrated, are always chewy. Yeah. That's just what they are. Yeah. The only thing I might suggest is rehydrating in water, cold water, sitting in the fridge overnight. Uh, Give it 12 hours, which I've never done. But I think if you wanted to test the limits of rehydrating, that would do it instead of half an hour with hot water. Look, a lot of cultures, chewy is part of the attraction in many parts of China. Things that are crunchy, things that are chewy is something that people really prize. So I'm not sure that chewy is necessarily a bad thing. I think it may be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that I looked at it as a problem, like I was doing something wrong, but to your point. No, I no. think it's fine. But if you do find it too chewy, the finer you chop them up, the less chewy they'll be because they're in smaller pieces. So that is a way around it. And just one last thing. Some dried mushrooms have been dried for 10 years on the shelf. So True. if they're really powdery, you know, in the package, you just might be getting the really old stuff. So yeah. anyway, maybe it's not a problem. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, you gave me some things to try, so yeah. I appreciate it. Okay, Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with dinner, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Laura from outside of Philadelphia. Hi, Laura, outside of Philadelphia. (laughs) How can we help you? Well, I had a baking question. Mm -hmm. When I bake... I've noticed that sometimes the recipe says to butter the pan. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the recipe says to butter and then dust with flour. Sometimes it says to butter lined with parchment and then butter again. (laughs) And then sometimes it says to spray with cooking spray. I'm just wondering, like, is there actually a difference between all these methods? Or is it, like, just the preference of the recipe writer? That's an excellent question. And it goes to the heart of inconsistency, which is... One of those things that drives me crazy in baking. First of all, there are cakes like angel food or a sponge cake sometimes that you don't grease because you want the cake to hold on to the pan as it rises and doesn't collapse when it bakes. Right. If you have a nonstick pan, no baking pans are truly nonstick. I guess silicone pans may be the closest, but I don't like those. Yeah. So you need to spray a nonstick pan, and that usually works pretty well. If you have a cake or dessert that's high in sugar and is particularly sticky or a bun pan, Mm -hmm. which is really, you know, tough because of all the curves and everything else, you probably do want to butter and then flour, which also helps release during baking. So the answer is if a cake needs to attach to the pan, don't grease it. If it's a nonstick pan, you can just spray it, I think, with uh, spray. And then if you have cakes that are particularly difficult, I would butter and flour or parchment at the bottom around cake pan. I'd always put parchment at the bottom. Right. And I buy packages of eight and nine inch rounds pre-cut, keep those around. And I also buy boxes of parchment paper in the sheets. I think one of the reasons it's so inconsistent over the years is parchment didn't used to exist. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. I, it was a great question, by the way. Yes, very interesting. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Next up, it's Dan Pashman. Dan, uh, what's up this week? 
I just had the most delicious lunch, Chris. Can I tell you about it? Oh boy, this is gonna this is gonna be a thrill. A jar of good Italian tuna, yeah. A can of artichokes, and the rest of a jar of capers. Huh. Okay. By my standards, this was fancy, and it involved two jars and a can. And and my point to you here, Chris, is that we should be eating more foods out of jars and cans. Well, you know, this is a very timely topic. There's a restaurant, I think, in Brooklyn that specializes in canned fish, and canned foods are coming back. Yeah, and and it's, I mean, in my house, they never left. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I yeah, I just think that why is anybody dealing with artichokes? Like, yeah, I've seen the videos you post on Milk Street of, like, Nona's in Tuscany, you know, like, taking 15 minutes per artichoke to prepare them just so. And that's beautiful and nice to watch. But, like, who in the real world has the time? Well, how do you think the Nona's live so long? <laughs> I guess so. There's always one more artichoke to chop. There's always another artichoke. Well, I, look, there are some items, capers, of course, certain condiments, tuna, yeah, the really good Italian stuff is great. Uh, artichokes, yeah. I mean, but, you know, if it turns out the Chef Boyardee's living upstairs in your house, that's not too good, right? <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, look, I think Chef Boyardee has its place, but I get what you're saying. But, like, I just feel like I'm able to make so much deliciousness in my home just by opening cans. Like, I made homemade pizza, bought the dough from the pizzeria down the street, uncooked, and I put artichokes and chickpeas from two different cans on top, a little bit of feta cheese, and that was dinner, and it was fantastic. You know, uh, beans. I've never made beans from scratch in my life. Dan, come gonna, on. I, mean, I, I know that's sacrilegious to some people. No. I know there's some bean purists out there who will laugh at me. But, like, why? I can open a can. Dan, I, I'm going to tell you something about yourself you don't know. Okay. <laughs> or maybe you do. Okay. Here, All right. you, you're I'm just ready. like me. You get a new idea. You go like, hey, canned foods are great. And then the entire world of fresh food goes out the window. And you decide, like, this is it. I'm living in the world of canned food, right? Right. Yeah. Once your mind is focused, it's laser-like. That's true. That is true. That's the way you are, too? Yeah. I get an idea in my head, and I stick with it for at least 10 or 12 minutes. Yeah. Then <laughs> then another idea pops up. Right. That's okay. Do you have certain favorite go-to canned items or, or dishes that you put together by opening a couple cans and jars? Uh, there are. You mentioned, too, uh, that my wife you know, has a huge, I think, half a shelf of the, the glass-jarred Italian tuna, which is quite expensive but quite good. Artichoke hearts is, is just a great, you know, go-to ingredient, which is nice. Uh, preserved lemons, actually, you know, you're not going to do that yourself. Uh, that's really good. I have a ton, of, actually, of salsas, you know, harissa, chili paste. Oh, those are also – yeah, those are crucial. Relish. I love relishes. And then, of course, I'm – Mr. Marmalade. So is that really? I feel like I'm going to have to call you that from now on. I've actually this is I've only revealed this to you. I'll actually put some of my cornflakes in the morning. Oh, yeah, I bet that's good. So yeah, I I, I think that's right. All right. It's funny that you mentioned preserved lemons because despite my devotion to canned and jarred goods, I actually preserved my own lemons like eight years ago, and they're still in my refrigerator because the couple of times I tried to put them in anything, they were already mm. two or three years old. And um, had such an incredibly strong flavor and aroma, which I loved, but nobody else in my family would touch. And now I'm stuck with these preserved lemons, and I don't know what to do with them. You got any tips for me? How can I use these to make more flavor for me without turning off the rest of my family? Um, yeah, I do have a suggestion. Okay. Uh, take one and slice it in half, and then slice very thin pieces. Okay. And use just two or three tiny little thin slices. Okay. 
because what you're probably doing is using a quarter of one or something, and that that's just overpowering. Yeah. So, the, the the secret reserved lemons is you know just use a little tiny tiny. Okay, I think all right, yeah, and tiny. sliced very thin. Okay, now, now you have to go find the jar of reserved lemons you threw out last <laughs> week. Yeah. So that's it. So 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 you you're now totally converted, or they're only just a handful of things you think are better in camp. I, I mean. I'm not a person who loves project cooking. Maybe a couple times a year when I really have a whole day to relax and spend that time in the kitchen to prep the night before or whatever, soak the beans or spend an hour pre, you know, chopping and prepping vegetables. A few times a year, holidays or, or cold days in the winter, sure. But most of the time, like I just, I feel like the the cost benefit analysis of the flavor that I can get and the amount of time and effort is just absolutely comes down on the side of cans and jars almost every time. Well, to be honest, I got back from Mexico recently, and I my first lunch I got a can of black beans, drained it, mashed it, put it in a saucepan with some little bit of garlic and harissa, mm-hmm. cooked it up. And then threw it, and I brought home a stack of tortillas, you know, toasted some tortillas Oof. and threw it in with a little bit of cheese. And I have to say, there was like a five-minute lunch. Right, um, and it was fantastic, right? Yeah, black beans in a can, especially yes. if you're using it like that, is is perfectly fine. There yeah. you go, folks. You heard it from Christopher Kimball himself. Now, next week, Dan Passion will be back to talk about frozen food. <laughs> Frozen peas forever. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Dan Pashman has discovered the joys of canned food. Uh, Dan, thank you. Thanks, Mr. Marmalade. <laughs> that was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or simply want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or learn about our magazine and our latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Media Director, Melissa Baldino. Executive Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Special thanks to 99% Invisible for bringing us the story of Pink Margarine. Thank you Chris Berube, Joe Rosenberg, Dan Hirsch, Swan Reel, Brendan Hackett, Delaney Hall, and Roman Mars. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.